Philippians chapter four this morning, uh, beginning in verse 10, all the way to the end of the chapter, Paul writes, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you had revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have it abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let me pray for our time. Father God, we come before you this morning and we recognize that you are the creator of all things. That all that is before us, all that we touch, all that we see is a handiwork of that which you have done. We give you great thanks, we give you great praise that all good things are from you. Uh, That you are a creator, that you are a provider, that you are a sustainer towards us. And Father, I pray this morning as we open your word, Lord, I pray that your spirit would guide us, that you teach us. Pray that you would allow us to hear that which you'd have us to uh, to respond to this morning. Pray that you allow my words to be yours, that you would move through me just as you see fit, and that I wouldn't get in the way of what you'd want to do this morning. Uh, Father, I ask for us this morning, in the midst of a topic that for us may feel foreign or may feel alien, or for many of us, a topic that we may have defenses uh, immediately raised to, Lord, I pray that you'd allow us just to hear from your spirit, that you would allow your word to bear fruit in our lives and in our hearts, and that you would teach us uh, step by step this morning, Lord. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Well, a few years ago, we had on staff in our college ministry an intern named, who we'll just name him for the sake of this morning, Danny, all right? Danny had a great crush on this girl as he was uh, kind of walking through his internship with us. She was still a student. She was a senior, and there were a couple problems that a lot of us identified with his crush. One was the girl was way out of his league, all right? So uh, a lot of us were like, well, Danny, that's cute, but, but who are you kidding? You know, like, uh, I don't think it's really going to work out for you. You know, you're a great guy, but, but really, you know? Um, second problem was she had a boyfriend at the time. So um, kind of problem number two, right? Kind of uh, not, not just an obstacle, but maybe a real problem there, right? And so, uh, and as irony would have it, uh, as uh, uh, spring of the senior year for this girl was coming around, and as he was finishing up his internship, uh, his first year of his internship with us, trouble began to brew in paradise for this little girl and the guy that she was in a relationship with, all right? And as irony, or maybe as God would have it, Danny found himself uh, and found this girl coming to him for dating advice, all right, in this failing relationship that he wanted nothing more than for this thing to fail and to die miserably, all right? Um, And so, you know, he kind of found himself in this tricky spot, right? Uh, You know, they were great friends, and so it was out of that friendship that he really kind of knew her and really had developed a real interest in her and yet had been trying to be a guy of integrity, a guy above reproach who wasn't trying to mess with the relationship, and yet here she was coming to him saying, hey, Danny, what do I do? (laughs) This thing seems like it's dying. This thing seems like it's struggling. How do I respond to it? What should I do? What do you think I should do in this relationship? Now, guys, if you were Danny, what would you have done? Uh, Would you have pulled yourself out? You know, hey, I don't know. You know, I'm not really acquainted with the ways of romance. Or would you have taken your two hands and given a little gentle, gentle push and just shoved this thing right off the cliff, right? To a tragic death. What would you have done, right? 
And now here's a trick. Uh, Danny really tried to walk that out as carefully as he could. But remember, if you have a crush on the same girl and you push this relationship over the cliff, it's a little tricky when you want to work your way back in because you're interested in her later on, right? How do you, how do you maneuver through that kind of tricky situation? Uh, by and large, it's pretty clear. Danny really was in a situation that he had a conflict of interest, right? Uh, no matter how integrity and how uh, upstanding of a guy he was, no matter how pure his motives, and uh, even if he had zero agenda whatsoever, uh, as things would turn out later and as he would marry that girl, all right, and things would work out quite well for him, right? Looking back on those conversations, it was quite easy to say, hey, maybe you should have pulled out from that conversation, right? Uh, in the midst of your conflict of interest, it created a situation where maybe your counsel and your instruction could be questioned. Honestly, I think Danny handled that situation as, as well as he could have, and it obviously turned out quite well for him. But I think that same kind of conflict of interest situation really is seen as well when the church begins to talk about uh, believers and the responsibility they have to give of their financial resources, right? Uh, this morning in Philippians 4, Paul is going to address to the church in Philippi how they're to handle their financial resources, right? The challenge is, in the midst of his instructions, that he is personally benefiting from what he's instructing, all right? And so what you're going to notice as Paul walks through chapter 4 is he's going to have disclaimer after disclaimer because he recognizes there's a bit of a conflict of interest, all right? And I will tell you as a pastor and as a church leader, when we begin to talk about finances, it is a bit tricky and a bit challenging because ultimately the instructions that the Bible seems to put in front of all of us are ones that frankly benefit me personally, all right? Uh, There's a bit of conflict of interest that makes it difficult to wade into this discussion. Uh, Two weeks ago, we looked at the beginning part of chapter four, and we saw that Paul was addressing a conflict that broke out in the church. And what Paul really did was maneuver very delicately through that situation so that that thing didn't erupt and become even more tense and even more flammable, if you will. What you're going to see this week as we kind of walk through, and actually this week and next week as we walk through this second half of chapter four, is you're going to see Paul even more delicately maneuver through and to thank the Philippians for their gift and then to continue to instruct them as to what God had for them and was calling them towards in terms of their finances. I'll tell you as a pastor, it's a bit challenging and a bit of a, my own uh, <laughs> uh, personal instinct is to want to pull back on a topic like this because it seems like it's benefiting me all right, and benefiting the church. And yet what's really fascinating about the topic of finances is really that the Bible will, in 2,350 verses, speak of our view and our handling of our money or our possessions. In fact, the Bible speaks greatly to that topic and frankly speaks to that topic even more than salvation, all right? The topic of money, the topic of possessions is a dominant topic from Genesis to Revelation throughout your Bible. So that despite the conflict of interest, I think there's actually even more damaging and even more threatening if we remain silent on that topic because it's a huge part of life. It's a huge part of what you're looking forward to once you graduate and you get out of this place is that you could make some coin, right? Uh, maybe one of these days you'll actually be paid for what you're doing instead of having to pay to suffer like you do in school right now, right? Uh, great uh, reversal of fortunes that will occur when you graduate. Uh, and I'll tell you guys, I think for some of y'all who will be stepping into internships this summer, for some of you guys who will be graduating and finally stepping into a paycheck here in the coming months, uh, the topic of finances and money really is incredibly appropriate, incredibly relevant, and really significant for you. I'll tell you for you guys who are a little farther away from graduation and uh, are racking up school debt left and right, uh, I'll tell you that the way that you view your finances now and the way that you're beginning to handle your finances when there is little or they're evaporating uh, is as foundational and is as transformational as to how you're going to handle your finances and view your finances when you have much. What you do with a little now is really shaping how you're going to view your finances in the future and how you're going to handle them. 
So I think this topic is not just critical throughout our Bible, critical no matter whether you're a sophomore right now or whether you're a senior who's staring at the real world wondering, what am I going to do with myself, right? Uh, No matter where you are, I really think the topic of finance is really relevant and really significant. The Bible is going to speak to it to a ton. And so I think it's really relevant that we come and address it this morning, really wrestling with, hey, what has God, God called you and I to in terms of our finances? I think by and large, you and I separate the sacred from the secular uh, quite cleanly in a way that we get really uncomfortable the moment that any person in a spiritual arena begins to talk about money. So Paul is going to address that topic. And I want us to kind of walk through and kind of see exactly what Paul is going to say and how Paul will speak of that topic and call us to view that topic. And so look with me, if you will, chapter four, verses 10 and on. First thing I want you guys to notice is really as we look at this topic is that ultimately finances represent, in a sense, it reflects our worship. That ultimately, as we look at the topic of money, uh, money and the worship you have of God are not uh, topics that are, in a sense, unrelated to one another. In fact, Paul is going to tie them as tightly together as you can. Notice in verse 18, notice what he says. It says, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. And I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus, which you have sent a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. If you guys remember, Paul had spoken on earlier in the book about how Epaphroditus had come to him, and now he's, he was planning on sending Epaphroditus back to the Philippians. And what we find here in the end of chapter 4 is that the reason why Epaphroditus had come to visit him is that he was bringing forth and delivering to Paul a financial gift from the church in Philippi. Uh, in a sense, Epaphroditus was the giver of that gift. He was the one who was coming to deliver it. And he says, thank you for your gift. Really what verses 10 to 23 is just a giant thank you note that ends the book to the, uh, to the Philippians right here. He's thanking them for the gift that they provided. And what I want you guys to notice, though, is the way that Paul describes their gift. Notice what he says particularly. He says, what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. He describes their gift as an aroma and a sacrifice. What's Paul doing here? I think Paul is actually taking us back to kind of an Old Testament picture of worship in which you had a temple, you had sacrifices being burned, you had incense being offered. And what he says is essentially that their financial gift to Paul was a way in which they were worshiping God and it was in a sense a sacrifice in the very altar that was being consumed and being provided to God. One that he was incredibly pleased by. In fact, what I want you guys to notice at the beginning here in Philippians 4 is that ultimately money and worship go hand in hand. They go, they go right together. In fact, it's not just money, but Paul will say in Romans 12, he'll broaden it and he'll say, I urge you brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Romans 12 really expands this idea and says this. It's not just your finances, but your body, your entire life is a living sacrifice, in a sense, consumed in worship to God. That if you know Jesus Christ this morning, that your whole life is worship. Your whole life is sacrifice. I think by and large, you and I so cleanly and so often can divide the sacred from the secular and we keep them distances apart. And the idea being, too, you know, God doesn't care anything what you do with your grades or your school. God is not at all a part of school. And that, again, is a separation of the sacred from the secular, which is not true. God cares greatly how you handle your vocation as a student. God cares greatly what you're learning and how you're learning and whether you're inviting him into your studies and into your academics. Even more so, God cares very greatly with what you're doing with your finances. There's no element of life. There's no aspect, there's no arena of your life that is devoid from God's care, concern, and even instruction. Your finances are the same. Uh, There is no separation of the sacred from the secular. Your finances, which seem secular, very much are a part of and an asset to how you worship. Uh, God hasn't uh, distanced and separated those things like you and I so often do. So the question is, what do our finances then say about our worship? 
if they're an asset in worship, then what are they saying even more about our worship? I think what Paul will go on and say further is that ultimately, actually not Paul, but Jesus himself, he's going to say that it's not just that our worship, our finances show that they're an asset of worship, but even more so they show our choice in who we worship. It's not just that they're used in worship, but often they can at times dictate what we worship and who we are pursuing. Notice what Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 6. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your finances go, there is where you love. That's what you love. Therefore, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot worship God and you cannot worship wealth together. You will either worship one or the other. You and I, by and large, are part of a materialistic society that has elevated money and possessions at times above God. And that which was meant to be an asset used in worship has become the very end object of what we worship and what we're pursuing. I think for so many of us, that may be very much how we would describe our own pursuit of a degree and our own pursuit of what we're looking at after college. What is it you're pursuing? Is the job that you one day want and the coin that you one day want to bring home, is that a way for which, which you can turn around and worship God? Or is that something that you're pursuing that is the end, by, or the end goal of your life? What is it you're after? What is it you're wanting? By and large, you and I can separate the sacred from the secular. And what I think Jesus is going to say and Paul is saying here is that really our secular finances, if you want to call them secular, can actually reflect and show us how much we actually value God himself. Your pocketbook shows what you worship. It shows what you love. Sometimes the secular actually shows what you think to be most sacred, what is to be most set apart, what is to be most valued and honored. I'd love to ask you this morning, as you look at your own finances, a lot of us I know are working uh, just to make our way through school. Some of you guys are working, and yet even as you go through school, you're racking up school debt. So if you were to look at your finances, it's moving in the wrong direction, right? And then there's some of you guys that really aren't having to work. Your parents have provided for you in some ways. And and one of the things I'd love to tell you guys in terms of myths about your life is that you are actually not that poor. (laughs) In many ways, I think we often think, hey, college students are the poorest group out there. And at some level, yeah, some of you guys are racking up school debt, and right now you are poor. But in large measure, you are in a place in life in which you're moving towards a degree that's going to allow you to provide a job that's going to pay for and pay off that school debt and eventually put you in a long-term place in which you will be one of the richest in the world. Some of you guys actually right now are incredibly rich. Uh, The reality of life after graduation is that much of what your income will go to are, are things that are absolutely necessary that you cannot get away from having to pay. Mortgages, school debt, loans, food, groceries, things that are just essential. Such that by the time that you're left with what remains of that paycheck, you actually might have less after graduation on discretionary fun things than you do now. Is that not depressing? (laughs) You know, honestly, by and large, much of what you guys spend your money on are things that you do not have to have right now. Much of us spend our money on coffee, eating out, movies, music, things that are basically by nature entertainment. Things that are not essential to life, right? You guys, actually, I would argue right now have more discretionary income and and money to spend on things that are by nature entertainment than you may actually after college graduation, which means right now you have more riches and you have more wealth right now than you actually in some levels may have after graduation. And so the, the myth that you're poor actually is not true at all. For some of you guys, it is. I get that. I'm not trying to push you guys, but I'm saying for a lot of us, I want to uh, remove that myth so that we could at least consider, hey, where are we with regards to our finances? And can our finances actually show us what we value and what we worship? To the extent that you have flexibility with your finances, I'd love to challenge you to consider, hey, what is it you love? What is your credit card? What is your checkbook? What are your bank accounts say that you preciously value and worship? Because there is a connection between what seems secular and what seems sacred. There's a connection with your finances and what you worship. 
Ultimately, Paul will say in verse 20, notice for the one who values the glory of God, notice what he says in verse 20, now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The person whose finances are merely but an asset in the worship of a God who's most glorious can say that. But when you and I love something greater than God and we love that which is material, we cannot praise God in that same way because ultimately our finances show us what we value. Ultimately, I'd say that our finances reflect the degree that we adore God himself. Your finances are a window that shows how greatly you adore God himself. It's interesting as Paul's going to turn the corner here, I think it's not just that our finances show how greatly we adore God, but ultimately our finances also show us uh, the degree to which we appreciate those who lead us in worship. Ultimately, I think our finances show us two things in worship. One, how greatly we value God. How greatly will we worship him? And our finances are an aspect of how we show that. The second thing our finances do is they show us how greatly we appreciate those who lead us in worship. Notice what Paul will say in terms of appreciation in verse 10. Notice what he says. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Notice also verse 15 and 16. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. One of the things I want you guys to see in Philippians 4, what Paul is saying clearly to them is he recognizes that their financial gift to him is a statement of their appreciation for him. All right. Uh, it was Paul that had planted the church among them. It was Paul that first led them in worship and was continuing to lead them in worship. And what Paul was saying is that their financial gift was a reflection of their appreciation for him. It's interesting that Paul will say in verses 15 and 16 that the Philippians were the only ones who shared that. They were the only ones who modeled after that, that no other church had followed after the example that the Philippians had. That the Philippians, in a sense, were the par excellence of what he wanted the other churches to realize that it was a universal expectation. Paul had a universal expectation that the churches would support him. And I'm going to turn the corner and try to provide you guys really, as we kind of pull away from Philippians a little bit, a rationale for why ultimately finances are a part, not just of our worship, but a part of how, honestly, and this is where it feels like a conflict of interest, but I think you guys got to see this from the scriptures, that ultimately those who are in ministry, this is how they make their living, all right? Notice what Paul will say, or actually Jesus will say of the disciples in Luke chapter 10. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, whatever house you enter. If a man of peace is there, stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Luke chapter 10 is really fascinating. Jesus is going to call the disciples and send them out really on a missionary journey. And what he's going to do is he sends them out is he's going to ensure that they are going to be utterly dependent on those that receive them, right? He says, I don't want you to take any money. I don't want you to take uh, any, any shoes or bag. And ultimately, I want you guys to go and be utterly dependent on what is provided for you. Fascinating, interesting thing. I, I think for so many of us, we have such a need for self-sufficiency. This would utterly undermine so many of us and what we want and how we function. To be utterly dependent on others, right? So Paul is calling the disciples to, uh, Jesus will, and then Paul will come back and, and uh, in a sense, summarize what Jesus was saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14. And he says, So also the Lord directed those who pray in the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Paul will say without a shadow of doubt, really, that for those that are proclaiming the gospel, the way that they get their living is from uh, that which is provided in worship to the church. Last passage for you, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. The elders rule well. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Why does Paul bring in an extra little analogy here? You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. 
It's clear that Paul is saying that those who preach and teach, those who lead the church are to receive uh, their life, uh, in a sense, how they live off of that work, in a sense, that job. But notice what he does here with the last analogy at the end of uh, verse 18. You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. What is Paul saying? Ultimately, an ox while he's threshing, Paul, the Paul's point was it, it would be ridiculous to take a, and put a muzzle on him so that he could not eat while he was working. Just like you wouldn't do that to an ox, Paul's point is why would you do that to a missionary or toward a pastor? That doesn't make sense. Ultimately, Paul is going to say that there is no, in a sense, in the same way, there's no separation between the sacred and the secular, right? He's going to say there's a, there's a principle that we ex- allow to exist in nature that for some reason we have a really difficult time within the church, within a spiritual setting. I was thinking even this week about just the, the process of tipping, right? Uh, a lot of us will go to a restaurant and it is, it is universal assumption and expectation that a part of how a waiter makes their living is off of tips that are provided. So uh, sometimes, therefore, waitresses and waiters will take advantage of that, right? And they'll put the bill down on your table and what will they do within the bill? Slip a picture of their kids, right? As if that's supposed to help influence how you tip, right? Um, uh, on the flip side of that, I, I love how uh, customers will at times take advantage of really this universal principle, okay? Uh, I've, I've seen and, and I've heard the story of uh, two guys who took out two girls uh, for senior prom in high school one year, all right? They took them to a nice restaurant. They went ahead and figured out ahead of time what they were going to be paying, what these girls were probably going to order. And they went ahead and figured out ahead of time what they would tip the waiter, all right? So they showed up at the restaurant, they sat down, waiter showed up to take drink orders, and they proceeded to lay out single $1 bills on the edge of the table. And they explained to the waiter, hey, this is going to be your tip for the night. And we want you you to clearly know exactly where you stand with us, and so as the night goes, as you make mistakes, we're going to pull money off the table just so you know where you stand, all right? Ridiculous, all right? Okay, Uh, and and then of course the waiter, uh, having never seen this or never heard this before, kind of freaked out and was like, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard, right? And to which one of the guys pulled a dollar off and goes, never question the customer, all right? You know, I, I think though, like even in a restaurant arena, right, there's this common assumption from both sides of the party that, hey, that this guy is going to make his living off of what he's doing, right? And to the degree that he, he does it, there's a, in a sense a cultural understanding of our job in that. Now, of course, there's a lot of places and a lot of arenas that I'm not totally sure how to tip, right? Sonic, right? They're skating to me. Maybe they're walking. I don't know. Do I tip at Sonic, Starbucks? You know, there's questionable arenas. There's questionable places, right? But by and large, there's this underlying assumption that in that realm and in that industry, hey, part of how they make their living is off the tips that are provided. What Paul is doing for the churches at large is helping them understand that part of how those that are sent out as missionaries or even those that are church leaders make their living is off of really what the church provides or the believers in the church provide. It feels so awkward to me to talk about this, all right? And yet, part of what I want you guys to see as Paul will talk in Philippians 4 is that, that our finances show us two things as we worship. Shows us one, the level and the extent to which we adore God himself. Our finances, that which seems secular, actually shows us how greatly we value the sacred. Secondly, our finances also are a way in worship to appreciate those that are leading us in worship. And so Paul had founded the church there. He was continuing to lead them. And so finances were a part of how God was doing that, part of how God was providing for those workers. It was his design plan that was true, not just for the church, but in every other arena of life, right? What's fascinating, I think, as you look at this, though, is that Paul is going to call them to this. I think for us, the question is, how do we do this? You know, uh, what does it look like for us to do this? We don't talk about giving very directly ever, especially here in college class, especially with college students. 
So I want to kind of be just upfront and kind of let you guys know how we do that. If you have a heart or if you feel led at some point as you walk through the college experience that you want to give, part of how we do that is simply with a box that's in the back, all right? We, we'll say this every uh, morning to you guys, but there's a box in the back as you guys leave that we put howdy cards in if you're visiting with us. If you're signing up for a small group, we put that there. But also if you have a desire and you feel led that you want to give an offering, that's kind of where you can deposit that. That's where you can give it. Another thing that you can do if you have a heart to give is simply pop online, www.grace-bible.org giving and it provides you a whole series of ways that you can do that. Honestly, I, one of the things I want you guys to hear is that there are opportunities here, and ultimately you've got to kind of hear from the Lord as to what, what he would have for you. My intention ultimately and honestly to you guys, especially since you guys are going to leave us in six months to three years, however long that's going to take based on where you are in college, is not to benefit self and to benefit Grace Bible. I want you guys to hear as you graduate and as you take a job and as you transition in life and you step into another church one day, I want you to hear clearly that ultimately what God has called you to as you step into a vocation and a career, part of your finances are intended so that you could give those to the church so that the church can do what it does and so they can establish the worship of God in communities that you're a part in. That's ultimately what you're called to do. That's an aspect of your vocation and your career as you leave us one day is ultimately as you work and as you're employed and as God provides for you, that you would provide for his work and his church and his, his body to be established and to establish worship in communities that you're going to be a part of. And really, really, I think actually, as you look at Philippians 4, though, the primary point of where Paul is going to take Philippians 4, though, is not ultimately where we've gone. I think Paul is going to make the point that we've made, but ultimately what, what Paul is making is a bigger point. Paul's point is not just that uh, the way that you handle your finances reveals the extent that you value and that you worship God. Not just that it shows how much you appreciate those that are leading you in worship, but primarily, and ultimately what God is primarily thanking the church for is this, that their financial gifts established not just worship that was established to continue, but their financial gifts enable the establishment of worship where it did not exist. Not just finances that allowed the church to be established and to continue on where it was, but their financial gifts allowed worship to be established where it did not exist. Notice what he says in verse 15. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. And so Paul paints the picture, hey, as he journeys along, as he's going to new places sharing the gospel, they have continued to send gifts. And what Paul will say over and over here in the midst of this section is, hey, my needs are met. And what your gifts are doing is not taking care of me, but your gifts are taking care of and enabling the establishment of worship where it does not exist. As he proclaims the gospel to places that have never heard it before. Ultimately, your finances are intended so not just that you could highlight and show that the degree to which you worship God, the degree to which you appreciate those that are leading you in established worship, but I'd say even more so what Paul is thanking them for is that their gifts are leading to the establishment of worship where it does not exist right now. And as he goes on and as he has the opportunity to preach and to proclaim the gospel, what Paul's most thankful for really is, in a sense, their partnership in this. Notice what he says really in verse 14. He says, Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. Ultimately, what I think Paul was so thankful for is that he realized, or that the church of Philippi realized that the gospel being proclaimed to the entirety of the world was not just his job, it was not just his responsibility. They didn't just pat him on the butt and say, Good luck with that, right? But they actually said, hey, let us come alongside you. Let us enable the ministry that you're providing and that you're moving out so that we can be a part of that. And though we're not standing alongside of you, let us stand alongside of you in prayer and in finances so that the gospel can go where we are not called to right now. But yet the gospel has been called to go out throughout the entirety of the earth. And so let me challenge you, as you step into churches after graduation, let me challenge you, look at churches that are going to establish worship and be looking to establish worship where it does not exist. 
that they're not just concerned about their immediate community, but they're concerned about the nations at large. Ultimately, I think what Paul is thanking them for is that their worship and giving is, is allowing the establishment of worship where it does not exist throughout the entirety of the nations. One of the fascinating things is this book ends as verses 20 to 23 are kind of an odd closing. In verse 21, he says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. You guys remember all the way back to chapter 1. Notice uh, what Paul had said about his own imprisonment. Fascinating, uh, mind-blowing statement. He says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. Paul was rejoicing that he was sitting there in shackles and in prison, potentially awaiting a death sentence. Why was he rejoicing? Because his mind and his grid, and we looked at this at the beginning of the semester, was all about the gospel going out. And he could not wait and he could not rejoice anymore at the fact that he was sitting in Rome. He had an opportunity to proclaim not just to Caesar the gospel, but to all of Caesar's household and even to the Praetorian Guard, to all of those that were the most influential at that point in time in world history. Paul stood and Paul realized that if he could proclaim the gospel here, the gospel from here in Rome could go out throughout the entirety of the world. So Paul rejoiced in his imprisonment and he's going to end the book and say, hey, guess what? Uh, it's not just that I've had the chance to proclaim the gospel in this place, but there are some even within Caesar's own household that are coming to faith. The gospel is not just going out, but it's bearing fruit. And so Paul is saying in the Philippians, saying, here's what your gift has enabled. Your gift has enabled this gospel to continue to go out and to bear fruit. And apart from your gift, it could not have done this. And apart from your gift, there's no way the gospel could have gone out. Part of what God does as you graduate and as you have finances to, to be a steward of and to manage, part of what God is doing is using your finances and using your faith so that the gospel can go out to the entirety of the world. That is where he's moving world history to, and your finances are a part of that. Some of you guys know this, but we have as a church in our college ministry three key missions initiatives, three key missions places that we send students every summer and uh, graduates every uh, year after they graduate. Uh, Particularly, we go to East Asia, we go to Greece, and we go to a place uh, that we call Trade Winds. Uh, And partly we, we chose those three places because they seem like Rome to us. We chose three different places in the world in which there's a completely different cultural and spiritual heritage, but three different places that we see strategically to be like Rome. Places that are, in a sense, an entryway and a gateway to the rest of the world. A lot of you guys know that Marcy and I spent two years in East Asia, uh, some of the sweetest years for us of our marriage and even of just ministry, getting to proclaim the gospel to people who've never heard it. And getting to see a responsiveness amongst the culture and amongst the people in which millions and millions were coming to Christ every year in that place. In fact, you have a young church that's beginning to emerge, that's beginning to be established, and guess what their vision is in terms of their own call to the nations. Their vision as a church in East Asia is to take the gospel westward back to Jerusalem from which they realize that it came. And guess where that means from East Asia to Jerusalem? Guess where that means that they're going in terms of missiological or world uh, missions history? It means they're going right through what is known as the 1040 window, which is right through really the most unreached parts of the world. Places that we as Western Americans with our United States citizenship and passport cannot even enter into. There's the church in East Asia, a gateway to the world, now seeing a vision and now taking the gospel westward right through the 1040 window in areas and in places that we cannot reach. And yet here we are in College Station, Texas, Hope Bunkin College Station, Texas, having a chance to impact East Asia and now the entirety of the world through world missions. Same is true even of Greece. We've seen Greece as a place that has historically throughout all of world history had a uniquely influential place in the ideology and in the thought of much of Europe. So now in post-Christian Europe, uh, our spot and our opportunity to impact Europe through Greece, we see Greece as a gateway, an entry point to the rest of Europe. 
And lastly, in our trade winds location in the Muslim part of the world, we see that place as a place not just in which political revolutions are breaking out initially that are impacting the rest of the Arab world, but we also see the places in which God is now beginning to break the ground spiritually and we're beginning to see God move and to bring about fruit, the kind of which we've not seen in decades. God is beginning to do something in that country that we very much see and hope to be a gateway to the rest of the Muslim and Arab world. And ultimately what I want to do as we close this morning is challenge you and invite you to be a part of what God is doing in those three places. And a part of what 50 of your fellow students have said, hey, for this summer, here's what we're going to do, go do. 50 of your fellow students have said for the next five to six weeks in the summer, we're going to go and proclaim the gospel to these three locations so that hopefully people are raised up to know Jesus Christ and to take the gospel throughout the rest of the world. 50 of your fellow students are going to do that for five to six weeks. And what they're having to do in order to go is to raise support to do that. One of the things that we would love to do is extend to you an opportunity this morning. What we're going to do as we break is simply a break for lunch. Uh, we're going to end up here a little early and we're going to make sandwiches. And what we're going to allow you guys to do is, is simply encourage you as you feel led and as you desire just to stay behind and eat with us. Um, instead of going out for lunch and spending money on a lunch, if you feel led and you have a desire, we'd invite you to just stay with us. The money that you'd spend on lunch, just spend and, and, and provide towards us so we can put that money directly to college missions. Everything that you guys feel led or would have a desire to give is going to be going directly to those 50 students as they look to take the gospel for five to six weeks throughout the entirety of the world this summer. Uh, five to six weeks that you won't be able to be a part of. Five to six weeks as you're at internships or at camps or suffering in summer school uh, that you can't go be a part of that and yet you can participate and you can partner with them just like the Philippian church is partnering with Paul. Simply by coming along and saying, hey, let me pray for you. Let me follow along with you. But also let me give of my finances, however meager and however small they are. And yet even in the gift, Paul says, thank you. Not necessarily for their own needs, but for what the gospel can do and where it can be established and where worship can be established where it currently does not exist. That's what missions is all about. That's primarily what Paul in this, I think, last part of the book is thanking them for. Not the gifts that have enabled to meet his own needs, but primarily the gifts that enable the worship of God to be established where it does not exist right now. And that's the same kind of opportunity we want to open to you guys this morning as we wrap up and as we head to lunch. And so if you can stay with, with us, we'd love for that to happen. Uh, ultimately, what we're going to do uh, next week is we're going to come back and we're going to look back at this and kind of come at it from a different angle and look at the idea of contentment, look at the idea of how God provides for us, and ultimately, again, what God is calling us as we look at our finances, that he is the king of kings, he is the Lord over thousands of cattle, all finances are his. Everything that God would provide is from his hand, and so it dictates our own faith to respond in giving. And we'll look at this afresh come next week. And so we'd love for you guys to come back, but let me pray for us. Father God, we come before you this morning, uh, and we thank you that you are the provider of all good gifts, uh, that you own all things, uh, that you've created all things, and that all things that you've given us are good gifts from you, Lord. And I ask this morning, Lord, that you would begin to allow us to see that which you have given us and that which you have uh, put within our lives is everything that's from your hand. Father, I pray you'd allow us to see ourselves even as stewards, as those who are simply managers of your resources. And Father, I pray even as we come back next week and as we look at that topic particularly, Lord, I pray that you'd allow our, our hands and our grip to loosen on money. I pray you'd allow us to begin to see money as you see it. You'd begin to allow us to manage it and use it as you manage it and as you would call us to manage it. Lord, I pray that you would begin to look at our own priorities and our own heartbeat, Lord. I pray you give us the courage and the wisdom to be able to examine that in our hearts pray as we look at summer and as we look at the gifts that you've provided us and the possessions that we have, Lord, I pray that we would have open hands to those things, that, that we could willingly extend them uh, for your purposes, for your body, uh, and even for uh, those that may not know you yet, and that you, those you've called, those that you're moving uh, to an understanding of you, Lord, I pray that you allow us to see needs not just in our own community, but even needs across the world. 
And that as we look at our finances, we see this to be just an asset in worship and an asset in what you're doing now in, in human history and what you're moving human history towards, Lord. I pray that we could be willing participants, willing heirs in that, Lord, and that you would give us a passion for that. Father, I pray in a lot of us in the midst of just different attitudes we have or different things that kind of go up in us, Lord, I pray that you would speak to those things. I pray that your voice and your spirit would guide us and speak to us and, and direct us as we look at this topic, even come next week, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Again, thanks for being with us. Uh, we're going to have sandwiches in the back as you guys go through those doors. And so, hey, we'd love for you to stick with us. If you want to eat with us, great. If you need a roll, we understand. Anyways, have a great week and we'll talk to you guys and see you guys next week.